All right. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, you do not know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You may be seated. Alright, so just a reminder, in the book of James, there's a structure here, it's a chiastic structure. What we're looking at today, chapter 4, if you look at page 1, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, you'll find that that is a pair, that is a, uh, the complement of the earlier part of the chiasm, which is verses 12 through 20, back in chapter 1. Okay, so chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, talks about lust and anger versus God's gifts. And the idea of evidences of a credible profession of faith to others being associated with the proper use of God's gifts as opposed to disordered desire and anger. And so then we get into this part, and this deals with lusts and fighting versus God's grace. And so those relate, obviously, that God's gifts are given to his elect out of grace. In fact, sometimes you have the word that is the word for, um, uh, for grace, uh, charis will be used sometimes to refer to gifts. So you have the same word kind of get, get translated. So there's a close relationship. But it's important to remember the distinction of the two things. The grace of God is an attitude in the mind of God. And also, uh, the gifts of God can be given sometimes at, not out of a motive of grace, but instead he can give a gift to a person who is a reprobate, and he uses that to pour coals on their head. Right. So it's not an act of love towards them. It's an act where he is setting them up for the fall. And it's not wickedness on God's part, but it is his sovereign control. It's his displaying his justice. He gives more, that increases responsibility, and the result of there's more punishment. And so the idea of the giving of gifts and the idea of grace are closely related, but they're not identical. Gifts are a sign of love or grace, but they are not the reality of it. So, there's a relationship there. So that's the chiastic structure. Those are the pieces. So we have six verses to look at, but I, it, it pulls in the idea of murder and covetousness. And so we're going to be looking at some of the commandments and going through. So let's, uh, let's get rolling. Um, so chapter 4, verse 1, page 2 here. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Now, the term war there, okay, the word polemical is based upon this word. Uh, you might have heard of a polemark, right? A, a person who's responsible for war. Um, and so, these idea of the people who are, are people who lead with wars. Um, there's a, a fictional book called Ender's Game that has a strategos and a polemark. Those are both uh, Greek terms that were used in a piece of popular literature. 
uh, and they were assigned to have the person who's responsible for wars and the other person is responsible for the strategic, but the word uh, strategos is related to the Greek word also for war. Generals uh, were referred to as people who were strategos, and you have this idea of wars related to that word as well. So the word strategy comes from a word for war. So we have two different words, and both of them get used in this chunk of text. Okay, So you'll see that as we go through. So where do wars and fights come from among you? So the, the idea I want you to see there, why is there a list of both? Wars would be sort of the long-term set of actions that work to destroy a person. That would occur in a, in a group, in a, in a setting of a group, principally in the form of sort of slander or going after people or trying to destroy them. Um, and then the idea of fights would be particular blow-ups, particular divisive moments, and that could be coming out of rage or anger. And so you have the Ninth Commandment and the Sixth Commandment going there. And so there aren't literal wars with formations of people with swords and shields forming up at the church assembly, right? There's, there's not that happening, and then they sit down and have the Lord's Supper together. What we're having is people who are hypocritically coming together, but then seeking to destroy each other. And so that, that mutual destruction, that, that idea of a war that's ongoing, is what's being warned against. And so the fights being particular events. So why are there these feuds? And why are there these particular blow-ups? Continuing in verse 1. Do they not come from your desires? So the word desires, is your desires, is not there in the text. It is implicit. I mean, it's a good uh, translation. Uh, but but it's it more literally uh, would have that absence. So do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Um, Look at point three. I'm trying to give a more literal translation, and I think it, it helps to get a little bit more of the meaning out of it, actually. So, do wars and fights not come from out of your pleasures that war in your members? So, the word pleasure is uh, ambiguous, right? It's like what, what you please to do and what you find pleasure in. Does that make sense? There's this, there's this idea of, of the things that you enjoy, and there's also the what you choose to do. And so, that's kind of both are, are there. And so you think about the relationship of them. You choose to do things based upon what you want to accomplish. Um, and so that choosing uh, of what you want to accomplish, you typically are finding pleasure in the completion of the things that you're pursuing. So your goals there. So we talk about God's good pleasure, for example. Uh, and God's good pleasure is his choosing what he wants to do. That's His decrees are his good pleasure, what he chooses to do. So do they not come from wars and fights out of your pleasures that war in your members. And the word members also has a double meaning here. They, you have these evil desires that war in your members, like your, your hands, right? You, you, you are trying to control yourself, right? You think about Romans chapter 6 with this idea of, of waging war with the sin that dwells within you. But there's also, inside of the church, members that are going against each other. So the idea of this, the danger of the war inside of you and not suppressing sin and then the danger of the destruction where members are warring with each other and fighting with each other is those are both being warned against. Now, the other thing that I know a lot of you are familiar with the term hedonism. Okay, so hedonism is viewing the good, the good as pleasure, viewing the highest thing as pleasure. So what's life about? It's about getting pleasure. Well, the word here is literally um, hedone, or sorry, hedone. No, that's wrong. 
Hedonon. Hedonon. That's the word. Sorry, I was trying to look at my own transliterated English and uh, confused myself. So the, the Hedonon. So you see the word hedonism has the same root as Hedonon. Um, so we have this idea of pleasure as the good, having wrong pleasures, having disordered desires, and then the idea of war again. And so you see that word based, that's the root for strategy there, is the word for war. So we have, we have fights that are particular, the ongoing fighting that occurs, and this idea of the intentionality of the pursuit of war in the members. So the danger here is that members of the body as individuals are used for evil because of evil desire. And the way we deal with it as individuals is we seek to grow in the knowledge of the truth. We seek to find our wrong desires. We seek to replace them with good desires to see them properly ordered with the word of God and the ministry of it in our own hearts. We store up the word in our hearts. We argue with falsehood as we find it. And then amongst each other, we go through the process of dealing with discipline and biblical conflict resolution. So that's the internal and there's the external. Now, page three. We have sort of this emphatic line. You lust and do not have. Now that word for lust just means to desire. It's not by itself a word that's filled with negative meaning. Okay, Because we're going to actually see the same root used in terms of the Holy Spirit. Um, when we go in later and we see in verse 5, it says, Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? That word yearns there has the same root of desire. Okay, So that's not the idea. Like the English word lust, we think of it as having this like wicked connotation with it. right? But it's not the point here. The point is not that desire is wrong. right? Christianity is not Buddhism. It is not the teaching that you should eliminate all desires. It is not the idea that nirvana is obtained by eliminating goals. We do not become happier by suppressing our rationality, replacing thought content with emptiness, making it so that we stop having objectives and therefore stop making choices. Right? That is not the goal. That is, that is making us into unreasoning beasts. What we do is we seek to replace false content with right content, have right goals as opposed to wrong goals, and we choose to do the means that God has appointed to obtain those goals. And so it is increasing our rationality. It is seeking to examine our beliefs more carefully. So the issue is not that you have desires, or what's translated as lusts. The issue is you have wrong desires. That's the idea. So you desire and you don't have. That means that you have wrong desires. That's the idea. Because if you had a right desire and you had, those things fit together in terms of God's promises of contentment and provision. And so we obviously can have lawful desires for things we don't have, but those things terminate in God. They end in God. And so what we do is we desire things for the glory of God. We desire to have things like money, like pleasure, like a good godly marriage, or whatever. We have these desires for these things for the glory of God, but they're not the end. And so if you are discontent, if you find yourself struggling with evil desire to do evil things to accomplish these things, you're finding you're making them into an idol. That's the idea. So you lust and do not have. 
You desire, lust, crave for, long for this thing, and you don't have it. And so the question of discontentment arises. And so when we, I'm going to come back here to page 3, but I want to jump forward so you understand where, where I'm going. Look at this. It goes, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. And then we go to page 5. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So we jump, the verse 3 helps us to get the proper context. It's not the desiring that's wrong. It's not the striving for good things that's wrong. It's the using of the wrong means and it's having a disordered desire. And in having the disordered desire, we then, we, even when we pray, even when we pray, we pray, even if it's for lawful things, we pray in a wrong way. Because what we end up doing is we say, my will be done. We, we pray for this thing. We say, I want this thing so that I can be content in this thing as opposed to being content in God and getting this thing to further glorify God. So when you pray and you're praying for a thing that God commands us to pray for, and you believe that God commands us to pray for it, but you have the desire of getting it to get it for your own fulfillment of an idol worship that you have in your own heart, something that you're valuing more than God, that is something where God is going to discipline you for your good by withholding it from you. That withholding of that from you creates pain. That pain is designed to help you to stop and think and to consider the 10th commandment in particular and the 1st commandment. Seeing God as the good and being content there. And when we see ourselves rightly ordered, when we stop craving these things as though they're God, we find often that God quickly gives them to us. So if you want to get the thing, stop worshiping it. If you want to get the thing, acknowledge that God is better than it. If you want to get the thing, see it as a means to honor God. Now, page three, let's look at the Westminster Larger Catechism. What is the Tenth Commandment? So contentment as it relates to desire here. The Tenth Commandment is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when we look at that, right, we, we think it's quaint, Right, but let's, let's be real. So the idea of the household. Is there anything in your neighbor's household that you ever covet? you ever covet any of the things that get listed out here? So we go, okay, how about your neighbor's wife? Okay, you ever discontent about not having a spouse? Or having a spouse and you wish, oh, I wish I had this other person's spouse. Right, that's wickedness. We have contentment in our own spouses. Then, the idea of looking at somebody else's manservant or maidservant. This is not... It's saying that it's evil to seek to hire people who work someplace else. What it's saying, though, is to be discontent. And then, in particular, rather than making a lawful honoring offer to be able to suggest, hey, I'd like to work with you, here's an offer to do that. Instead, it's making them discontent by attacking the reputation of the person they serve, seeking to alienate their lawful affections. And then there's the ox, which represents sort of capital goods that produce valuable labor, right? An ox is used to tread out the grain, the plowing of ground, the carrying of heavy goods. So this is sort of heavy industrial machinery. 
And then we look at the ass, the donkey, is for the transportation of things. So, you know, a nice Ford truck. Um, and then you look at this idea of they're not really able to ha- carry this, like, huge load, but they're useful transportation goods. It's something that makes it so that you're able to, uh, to get around and to be able to have a, a more comfortable traveling or anything that is your neighbor's. And so you, know, you look at that, you know, look at a Ferrari and you go, you covet that. It's not wrong to say, oh, I'd like to be able to afford a Ferrari someday. But it is wrong to be angry at somebody else having it. It is wrong to desire to take it from them or to feel like I should have that instead of them to go through that kind of process. There's a discontentment. So let's examine this, this further. 147. What are the duties required in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment requires... <clears throat> The duties required in the Tenth Commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. Okay, so full contentment with our own condition. That doesn't mean when something bad happens to you, when something hurts, you have to say, yes, please give me another one, this is great. What that means is you go, this pain came from God. I know God used this pain for my good. And to say, I trust God, and blessed be his name, in the midst of this pain. So to know that pain comes from his hand, and that the pain is for your good. When you receive good things, giving thanks, knowing it comes from God, that you don't have the power to get these good things for yourselves, but they're a gift from God. And so you gratefully acknowledge that. And then to know at the same time that he is better than the thing he gave. A charitable frame is to have the attitude of love. Okay, the word charitable in English normally is associated with the word agape in Greek, which is the love of seeking the good of the other. Okay, so a charitable frame, a loving frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor. So we want our neighbor to have what's good. We desire their well-being as that our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. So we, we see somebody else prospered and our, our inward motion, our inward desire is to see him further blessed and to desire to see him have more what is good. So you see somebody who you go, this guy doesn't deserve this stuff. What you do is you then go, I would like to help him more worthy of it. I would like to help him to be more worthy of it. You don't just say, sure, let's get this guy another one of these useless toys. No, the idea is you go, how can I bless this man to see him to possess inward treasure so that the outward treasures can be used to the glory of God? That's how you would seek that man's good. So the temptation with the rich, for example, is to look upon them and having all their outward toys and going, how can I make them like me so that I can get their stuff? Right? And Or we can resent them and say, eat the rich, tax the rich, tax the rich, you know, put them in an oven and stuff them. Right? That's, that's the rhyme, right? Everybody hears that, right? That's, no? Okay. So that's the idea, right? We have this danger towards the destruction of them or we have this danger towards wanting to just use them. So when you see somebody who has something you have, the desire should be to see them advanced in that and to also see them advanced in wisdom so they're making good use of the blessings they've got. The blessings they have, you go, 
it would be such a joy to see the law word of God on that Ferrari. It would be wonderful to see that man's household have the word on his doorpost. So what are the duties required? We read that. What are the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment? The sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontent with our own estate. I'm sorry, one last thing before I move off the old one. I'm sorry. We don't want to tell rich people the truth. Here's why. This is our temptation. If we tell them the gospel, if we tell them the law, if we tell them what they're doing is wrong, then we can't get them to, we can't flatter them effectively. We can't get the stuff out of them. Right? So, impartiality in presenting the word of God to the rich and the poor alike. Being unafraid of the scorn of men. That's what we're called to. Okay, so, that's one of the themes we see in James. Right? This idea of the impartiality, not assuming people are better because they're well-to-do. So then, 148. What are the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Okay, so discontent with our own estate. Whatever troubles or good things we have come from the hand of God. Come from the hand of God. If it's painful, the pain comes from God. It's for our good. If it's a blessing comes from God. Give thanks. If it's, if it's something that is enjoyable. So, envying is the desire for something that you don't have a lawful right to. So if you say, not just I want to be like this person and have the good thing. Instead it's, I want their good thing. I want to have it instead of them. I'm mad that they have it. I'd be happier if theirs was destroyed and we both didn't have it. That's sin. Grieving at the good of our neighbor. Something good happens, being sad about it. Together with all inordinate motions and affections, anything that's his. So, motions being what you will to do, affections being what you desire to do. So, sinful choices and sinful desires would include choosing to do things that undermine the good of our neighbor, having desires for the harm of the neighbor. Those are the violations of the Tenth Commandment. So you lust and you do not have. Godly ambition looks like seeking your own good, seeking to do what helps to advance your own outward estate and to advance your own soul and to bless others and to glorify God. Four, page four. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Murder is venuete. That word means to kill with premeditation. It's translated 12 times in the New King James in the New Testament as murder. There's only 12 times it's there in the New Testament. Murder every time. Interestingly, when we have the Sixth Commandment quoted, in the Hebrew, the word that's often translated murder can actually mean killing and not mean there's premeditation. But in the Greek, in the translation into the New Testament, it uses a word that means murder. So it's interpreting it. It's helping us to understand it. Now, the case law of the Old Testament also helps us to understand. And so there's this idea that the general rule is to not kill, and you have exceptions. Self-defense, 
just punishment for crime, just warfare, right? There's this idea of, of the use of physical force under certain circumstances taught by the civil law and the case laws. But in the Greek, you have this word that's more clear. So this idea of murder, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. Do you think James's point is that people in the church are literally murdering each other? Because that is like the problem with the churches that are made up mostly of old covenant believers who accepted the Messiah is that there's a widespread phenomenon of people just killing each other. Like drive-by stabbings. Like is this what James is talking about? He's not. What he's doing is he's using the category of sin, of murder, the Sixth Commandment, and he's saying you have these hateful desires. The hateful desires are the problem. And so there's the internal hatred and there's the coveting. Those are related. But the word he uses for coveting there is zilao, which is just zeal, being zealous. That's not evil by itself. Zeal is good when properly ordered, when properly placed. We're told that, for example, the Holy Spirit is jealous. He has a zeal for what's His. So, being envious is a subcategory of zeal or jealousy. Being envious is being jealous for what's not yours. That's coveting. So, this word covet is a good translation because it communicates the, the meaning even though the word is a broader word, the, the translators of the New King James have accurately captured the point. So you murder and you covet and cannot obtain. Right? You, you go and harm people. You're hating people because you want to get something that they've got or you're angry about what they've got. And you also are covetous for things that aren't yours, but you can't get it. So you're not happy. Because that idea of taking that thing and making it into a god. Now, what, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about the teaching office. We've been talking about the teaching office. Just before this, there was all this discussion about not many of you being teachers and the, the danger of the kind of wisdom that's worldly. Right. So we have the center of the text is about a profession of faith versus it being credible or not. And on either side of it, you have this idea of sort of um, the desire to, to teach and you have this idea of wisdom and whether you have wisdom or not. And then there's this idea of fighting. And so the murdering and coveting and not obtaining relates in large part to the idea of honor. And so the fifth commandment is often associated with the tenth commandment because we desire honors. And then there's this desire to get honors. And oftentimes we have a tendency to harm other people's honor in an effort to get more honor for ourselves. That is a tendency, and that's being warned against. And the idea of murder here is associated with the idea of Ninth Commandment breaking, which you know, slings and stones and swords right, are often used as analogies to point to the idea of words. So, you know, slings and stones may break my bones, but words are, according to the Bible, able to also harm my person. Less catchy but true, right? And so the ability to use words to harm people 
And then false testimony, right? You can even call a person as guilty of a crime, falsely accuse them of a crime, and bring about their death, right? This guy committed murder. A couple witnesses come forward. Maybe we can take his vineyard that way, right? You have Naboth's vineyard. There's a story about this idea of blasphemy and the guy having blasphemed, and there's testimony against him to get him criminally punished so that Ahab can take his, his vineyard. So you can murder with words, literally. Now, uh, it goes on. You fight and war. Okay, we go back to the word fight is the same as the one above. This idea of a particular event that's a fighting event. And the warring here is the kind of the ongoing battling. So, taking actions to harm according to the 6th and 9th commandment. And this warring, you take a prolonged action and attitude against a person rather than seeking peace. Remember all that teaching last time about being peaceable? But this is the opposite of that. So there's the warring and the fighting versus being peaceable. So look at um, James three sixteen through 18. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. Then these following things define what it is to be peaceable. Gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So bitter envy, that relates to this jealousy thing that he's talking about, the coveting. right? Selfish ambition, the self-seeking of, of honor, he relates back, back to the, the seeking of, 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 law, of office unlawfully, trying to be a teacher when you don't have actual wisdom, that kind of thing. Show that a man has confusion and every kind of evil in his soul. We talked about that last time. I'm going to skip down. These are notes from the last one. But I want to remind you, the wisdom from above is pure. It's holy. It prioritizes holiness over peace. But it's also peaceable. It it causes peace bringing. And that's shown by controlling your strength, by being gentle, being moderate. It's shown by being easy to entreat, being willing to yield on things that are not matters of principle. It's shown by, page 5, being full of mercy. And that's sort of having a charitable frame. Right? Being, uh, seeking to overglo- overlook things. Seeking to interpret things charitably. Um, a wise quickness and seriousness at forgiving. Being full of good fruits. Usefulness. Virtue of various kinds. Five, being without partiality. And so this goes through the process of conflict, deals with things, avoiding partial censuring or fond admiration. It doesn't skip the process out of impatience. It seeks to have judgments according to law. And being without hypocrisy. So being willing to apply the same standard to yourself as to others. Now, um, this results in enjoying the fruit of righteousness on both an individual level and a corporate level. And it's accomplished with the sowing of peace by those who make peace. So, the fruit of righteousness from sowing in peace by those who make peace. So, do you see that's contrasted with the fighting? So, bottom of page 5, we get, we're continuing in verse 2. The word yet is not there in the majority text. It just says, you do not have because you do not ask. So, if something is lawful and we desire it, we should ask for it out of faith for the glory of God and for our own good. We should ask for it. It's our daily bread. We ask for it. Anything that God commands us to do, we should ask for. And we should not look upon it as the good in itself, as the end in itself. We should look upon it as a thing that helps us to glorify God. So we should ask for 
daily bread. We should ask for resources to do our duties. We should ask for godly spouses. We should ask for children. We should ask for all the good blessings of this life, good food, all that stuff. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So if we ask for a lawful thing and God withholds it, we need to realize that He sees it as an idol in us because we ask for it in a manner so as to obtain our true God. He's not our God. That thing's our God. God withholds as a type of discipline for our good to chasten our disordered desire. So this idea of repenting and humbling comes up. We need to repent and humble ourselves. We need to have a right order of desire. So go to verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Because he's literally saying that all of these Jewish believers who have accepted the Messiah are literally committing adultery. No, that is not the point. The point is, their disordered desire and unfaithfulness in the law at any point makes them unfaithful to God. So, disordered desire connected to disordered, is connected to disordered sexual desire as an analogy. It's connected to unfaithfulness to the covenant with God. That's another analogy. So, holy desire is pure and keeps us from wrong connections. Adultery is connected with friendship with the world. Right? If our affections are for the world and the things of the world as opposed to God and the people of God. Profane desire is impure and launches us into wrong connections. So, it continues and says, Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Allegiances are a key part of our priestliness. Allegiances are a key part of our priestliness. We are called to be priests. We're called to be holy unto God. We are, if we're friends with the world, then we are not friends with God. We are friends with the world when we help them in their wicked aims, when we care about their opinion more than the judgment of the church and of God. The city of man is not our city. Our city is the city of God. These allegiances are mutually exclusive. You cannot love God and the world. This is the doctrine of the antithesis. The seed of the woman are at war with the seed of the serpent. There is no peace there. Verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? The Spirit who dwells in us desires with good desire what He has a right to. He desires our allegiance to be pure to Him. He desires our affections to be rightly ordered. He desires that our bodies would be put to his service exclusively. That we would have spiritual rather than fleshly bodies. That our bodies would be governed by the Holy Spirit and not by the sinful spirit of man or demons. Verse 6, But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we are proud, when we're arrogant, we do not look to the correction of God. When we are humble when we are lowly when we consider God and consider others what happens is that is how 
That is the attitude, generally, which is associated with the giving of more grace. And grace not in the sense of God's favor. God's favor doesn't grow toward us. His attitudes are unchanging. His compassions change not. He doesn't love you more because you do better. You don't get more of his favor because you're more worthy. We are worthy not in ourselves, but only in Christ. The idea is he gives more gifts when you use the gifts he's already given better. He gives promotions for good stewardship. He gives more sanctification for sanctification he's already giving. To the one who has, he will give more. To he who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The idea here is that there's a tendency, as God gives humility, he then also gives more gifts of grace. There was a pagan saying that says, whom the gods wish to destroy, they first make proud. Well, there are no gods, they are demons, but there is the true and living God, and whom he wishes to destroy, he does make proud. He raises them up that he might destroy them. He makes humble those whom he wishes to bless. And so that should make you seek humility with terror. It should make you seek humility with terror. God will resist your desires if you are raising yourself up against God, either for your destruction if you're reprobate, or for your chastening if you are elect. God will give good gifts motivated out of grace to the humble elect. The word proud is hyper-ephanos, which means overshining. It's to be arrogant, but more literally, it's kind of like being a show-off. It's the one who's seeking honor, seeking to gain praise and honor and power as though they were the good, rather than using those things as means to honor God by the means God has appointed. The, the, the outline of the book of James, if you remember back, he talks about this idea of, of seeking opportunities to serve in a lowly way before seeking to be one who's in public governance, right? That idea. That's the continued theme of seek to be matured and seek to go and to offer humble service. Now, humility, the word humble there can also just be translated as lowly. Uh, but it's, it's humility. It's this idea of a right assessment of self in relation to God, man, and circumstances. The right assessment of self in relation to God, man, and circumstances. Now, the part of the text that this contrasts, not contrasts, but that it relates to, is what we read before in chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. So I want to look at those and see how these things complement each other in the chiasm. Blessed is the man who endures temptation... On page 7, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So there's testing where you pray for something and God delays, not for your chastening, but sometimes he delays the answering as a test. Not as a discipline for the idolatry in you, but as a test. And if you endure that test, there's more blessing you endure that test there's more blessing verse 13 let no one say when he is tempted i am tempted by god for god cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed then when desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death 
And that death there, do you see how that relates to the idea of the fighting or murder? Okay? So this, this fighting, wars, murder, and the idea of sinful desire relating to the covetousness that's talked about. So we spend a lot of time talking about the idea of temptation there. Here's the key thing. God does tempt in the sense that he causes us to be tempted. He does not tempt in the sense that when he does it, it's not evil. He's above the wall. He causes everything. He causes everything. And so if you want to look at that in more detail, go back. But the main thing here is don't use the fact that God controls everything as a justification to say, I'm not guilty. That's what Paul argues against in Romans 9 as well. This is a parallel chunk of text that relates to Romans 9. God causes everything, and you're blamable. Why are you blamable? Because he's the judge, he's given you a law, and he's caused you to be aware that you're a breaker of the law. You contradict your own desires. You contradict your own, sorry, you contradict your own beliefs. Your own beliefs contradict themselves over time. What you say and what you judge contradicts itself. You are a breaker. You do the things that you yourself judge. So there's a judge above you, a law above you, and you're aware that you're a breaker of that law. God has no judge above him, no standard above him, and he does not lie to himself that there's a judge above him or a standard by which he'll be judged. He is not responsible. There is no one to call him to account. No one can say to you, O Lord, what have you done? So, we don't blame God. We accept that we're responsible. That's a part of humility. It's a part of the humility. We condemn self and we justify God. Verse 16, page 8. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So there's his, his grace. He's given us the knowledge of himself. And he gives more grace. And he gives the grace of salvation. And what does it tell us in the part we just studied today? That for those he's already given grace, when there's hum- humility, he gives more. When he gives the grace of saving faith, and then we become proud, he's going to chasten us. He's going to humble us. When we're humble, he's going to give us more gifts. Don't be proud when he does it. If you do, he'll chasten you and he'll make you brought low again. But you know what's way more fun? Getting the gift and remaining humble and getting another gift and remaining humble and getting another gift and remaining humble and getting another gift and remaining humble. That's way more fun. Less spankings, more fun. And so, verse 19, chapter 9, or page 9, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So the idea here, first and foremost, remember, is to be swift to hear the word of God, slow to teach, and slow to become angry with others in the midst of dealing with that, right? So when there's this dispute about doctrine, for example, But this applies in a broader scenario, in general, with conflict resolution, being swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And we have this general principle at the end, verse 20, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's possible to have wrath that is from the Holy Spirit. God gives us the gift of anger for the purpose of giving us strength to overcome wickedness. 
if you don't get angry at certain things, there's something wrong with you. At the same time, in general, the tendency of man is to become angry at the wrong things. And the wrath of man, the wrath that is produced from your own spirit, rather than the righteous anger that's produced from the Holy Spirit, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So how do you judge whether that wrath is lawful or not? I think point 11 is where I've got that. The wrath that comes from us does not cause us to grow in wisdom or to apply the law. Righteous anger comes from wisdom and is toward just targets and encourages the swift application of the law. Anger is for the ability to fight off evil rather than than be cowed. But only wrath produced by the Holy Spirit in us will be righteous. We have to discern between wrath of man and the wrath of the Holy Spirit. Scripture and careful judgment in due process allow us to discern when we have one or the other. A part of the reason you need due process and conflict resolution is so that you can avoid just reacting with anger, but instead can be careful to talk with each other and in slowness be able to judge and consider these things so that then you can carry out what is just. Now, the sixth commandment is something I've talked about a lot in here. And same with the ninth commandment. So I've printed those for you in the last four pages. You've got the larger catechism laid out there. And I think the careful study of these things, of the sixth commandment and of the ninth commandment, are necessary for peaceableness. The righteous man, he meditates on the law of God day and night. The, the blessed man meditates on the law of God day and night. It takes a lot of meditation to get this to sink into your soul. And so I want to encourage you to meditate on the Sixth Commandment and the Ninth Commandment because these are things that tend towards peaceableness. And the positive duties are about peaceableness, what to put on, and the negative duties are about how to put off war fighting, fighting, um, murder. So when we get into the Ninth Commandment, it's about how to put on proper honoring and the advancing of reputation. And the negative is about putting off wrongful negative speech, right? So we have the positive and the negative in both. So these are a laying out of what peaceableness looks like. And they are too long for me to go through at this time. But in your own personal studies, I charge you, look at these things and study them carefully. So comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.